I find that's a really easy song to sing, but a much harder song to apply. Amen? To lay it down, to genuinely lay our lives down. Um, I think if you're like me in church, you can sing that because everyone else is singing it. And you can say, I want that to be true of my life, Lord. But I just want you to take a moment uh, because I know in worship it can be this way. We just so get caught up in singing the words on the screen. Um, you don't need to answer out loud, but is that, is that genuinely the cry of your heart? Is that genuinely what you really want to say to the Lord this morning? Lord, I want to lay it down. Is that really something that you genuinely want God to help you do? Because if the answer is yes, Lord, I really want to lay my life down before you. I want to surrender all to you. Then, then just know that's one of those things we call a dangerous prayer. That's a dangerous prayer. Why is it dangerous? Because it's going to cost you something. It's easy to sing it. It's easy to say it. But when we pray, God, help me to apply this, it's going to cost you convenience. It's going to cost you comfort. It's going to cost you time. It may even cost you finances. I don't know. To be laid down before you is an act of worship. I want to pick up my cross and follow you, as Luke says. Man, that's going to cost us something. But the reality is that when we lay our lives down before God and say, God, I'm literally surrendering to you, the hymn is so true. I surrender all. And we, we've sang that in church for, oh my goodness, a long time. Every invitation song, I swear, for years was, was that song. And I used to always think when I was at, I remember at the old building, I was 17, 18 years old, I'd be singing that song and I'd be thinking, Lord, I, I don't mean this. I'm just being real. Lord, I want to say I mean this, but I don't really mean surrender all. I mean I'll surrender all the things that I want to give you, and I'll keep back all the things I want to keep for me. But we can do that in church, can't we? We can just stand and sing and, yeah, Lord, I lay it down. Man, I pray it's more than that. I pray it's more than that. And as I was standing over there just thinking, Lord, I want that to be true of my life. But moment by moment, that's got to be true. It's not always true. It's, there's going to be times you say, Lord, I, I want it to be true, but it's not. But maybe this morning you would say, Lord, I want to surrender. I want to lay it down. Because I'm telling you, when you make the decision to lay it down and surrender all, the result is more than you can imagine. The blessing, the joy, the peace, the, the, just the splendor of that relationship. I was talking to a guy this last week. I was blessed to be able to... Uh, preach at a church uh, again this last Wednesday and uh, down in the city. And as I was kind of getting some, talking to one of the, the guys that's there that I've gotten to know a little bit, um, when I was there here a few weeks ago, uh, he had shared God was doing some things in his life. And so we didn't get a chance to hang out too much that Wednesday night, but we were kind of going back and forth on Messenger. And I just said, hey, I'm you know, sorry that you didn't get to go. To, we went to Dairy Queen because that's the thing this church does. Every time after Wednesday night, they go to Dairy Queen, which is right around the corner. And it's really cool because the Dairy Queen owner knows the pastor of the church and gives him like a ton of gift cards to the Dairy Queen. So you know what that made me think? Keith or I need to become really good friends with the owner of the Dairy Queen in Emily City so that we'll get some gift cards given to us and we can give them to you guys. It'd be great. It's a good relationship. But we were hanging out, so he didn't get to go. And I, I said, man, I was really bummed you didn't get to go. And he said, you know, it's, it's cool because they were working on some things. And, and he said something that, that being newly married and, and expecting a child and all this, he said, you know, he said, because he surrendered some things that he was holding on to before he was even married that he didn't realize were an issue in his life. He said, you know, the minute I decided to really give those things over to God, he said, I'm finally experiencing the joy of my salvation. I'm finally experiencing what I think Christianity is supposed to be. 
And so for you, maybe you're here and you're holding on to something and you're like, but if I lay this down, no, trust me, lay it down and watch the Lord fill that emptiness now that you laid down that thing that you thought you needed. He's going to fill that with his presence. And you're going to start to experience the joy of your salvation because when we hold on to something tighter than we hold on to him, we're always going to lose. We're always going to lose. And so I just wanted to kind of, I know that wasn't even in my notes. That's nothing to do with conversations of God per se, but I just wanted to share that because as I was standing over here, that's what the Lord was kind of encouraging me with this morning. And so we are in week four of conversations with God. We're into, uh, again, we only got a couple weeks left and uh, we've covered a lot of ground. And last week we talked about this idea of deconstructing. So if you missed any of that, check it out online. You, you want to go back and watch that. Um, again, we've covered quite a bit of material. Um, and I do want to say, obviously, welcome to everyone's here, but also to those online. We appreciate you, you tuning in as well. Um, but as we go through this, this series, the one thing we keep kind of going back to is we want to to ask the question, what if we could have a conversation with God? What if we could sit down and have coffee with him? What would that look like? What would that sound like? What questions would we ask? And, and we talked about this idea of deconstructing in our, in our Christian culture today. That's a popular term that's going around. And we talked about it last week. It means to basically ask questions about the faith that maybe you were taught growing up. And as you get older, and maybe some of you are experiencing this now or you've gone through this season already, you ask questions and say, Lord, I don't know if this is really true and that's really true. And I don't know about this belief and that tradition and this thing. And do I really need church? Do I really need this? Do I really need that? And we kind of discovered that we all have these questions. We all have these questions. And then what happens is some people start to discover that because either their questions weren't really validated, nobody really heard them, they didn't feel like their questions were being answered, at least in any way, shape, or form, they get frustrated and they just quit. Well, there's no answer. That's the conclusion they draw. There's no answer to my question, so I'm just going to walk away. Other people have heard the answer, and it was not a biblical answer. It was tradition, or it was just some denominational response, or it was just some kind of surface response, or more or less a don't worry about that response. They get frustrated and they get concerned and then they start trying to look for the answer and they find it in the world. And they get other people and they go online and they hear these articles and all this and they get all this misinformation. Next thing you know, they walk away from the church and believingly, they walk away from the faith. And then there's those people who have general questions, who ask questions, who seek the truth in a sense that they understand it and yet they get biblical response. Somebody takes them to the word of God and they just don't like the answer. And that's okay, but it's still the answer. It's still the truth. And so I wanted to kind of just real quick review on this and give you some examples of some maybe questions that people have asked or you might be asking. And this is kind of just a review to last week. So, so one of the questions I hear asked a lot, and we're going to review just for a moment, and then we'll get into the new material. One of the questions I hear is, and when people are deconstructing, and I, I want to do this because at the end of last week, I felt like maybe we left it a little open. And I wanted to kind of give a little more meat on the, on the bones, if you will. Uh, sometimes people ask questions like this. Is this thing that I've been taught to believe a biblical doctrine or a church tradition? A biblical doctrine or a church tradition. They're, they're fine as long as they're kept in the box of church tradition, right? The minute that tradition crosses over into a doctrine or a teaching from God's word, now we've crossed that line, okay? Um, and I've debated about using this example, but I'll do it. And then if you're offended, I'm really sorry. You guys know my email, john at northgoodland.org. Send it on over. 
Um, I joke about that a lot, like it's going to go in the trash folder. I really do read emails, so I'm not going to just trash it. So don't, feel free to email me, okay? Some of you are like, I was going to email you, but you're just going to throw it away. So why do that? No, I really will read it, okay? I'm just joking. But, um, but one of the things I've heard growing up in, in church from 16 was when I came to North Goodland in, in youth group and to now. Um, and I've watched our church change quite a bit um, from what it was when I first walked in the old building uh, that little auditorium that maybe seats a hundred, maybe a hundred and five. Um, we used to put folding chairs down the center aisle because we just didn't have room for everybody. Um, I remember walking into that building and the, the type of church we were there, I loved. Because it was a biblically sound church that loved people, preached the gospel. There was so much good in that church. And it's still true today, by the way, I believe. But there was also that church tradition stuff. Some people have called it legalism. That's a term that gets thrown around a lot. It gets overused, in my opinion. But there was some of that. And I remember even when I was 16, 17 uh, years old, I was up in the uh, little sanctuary, auditorium, which somebody asked me this week, what do you call it? Is it a sanctuary or an auditorium? I don't really know. Whatever you want to call it. Okay, whatever you want to call this room. It's a sanctuary and an auditorium, I guess, in a sense. But I remember I was uh, 17 years old and some other students were there. and We were messing around, running around the church, you know, being silly, being kids. And I took off through that auditorium, okay, running right down the center aisle. Nobody was there. It wasn't church wasn't going on. We were just messing around. And if you remember the old church, if you've ever been there, there's this little tiny platform that's like, I think it's like one step, maybe two up to the stage. And you go up on there and then there was this like little area to run around. So we were just going crazy, chasing each other, being dumb kids. But... There was somebody there in the church, and they stopped us. And they said, hey, 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 don't you run in the church. And I was like, oh, okay, sorry. Now, I thought we don't run in the church because I don't want to either damage something that's the church's property or run into somebody who can't, you know, handle a direct hit from a 17-year-old and get, like, plowed over, okay? So that's where my mind went. And they instantly went to this, like, this idea of some legalistic, this is the house of God, and you don't disrespect God's house by running in his house. And this is the sanctuary. And this is the holy of holies and this kind of a thing. And it was getting really intense. And I was only saved for like a year. And I was like, oh my goodness, I did not know that's what this room was. Oh man, I need to watch what I do in here. And it wasn't until much later, I'm talking in college, that it finally dawned on me that yes, this is the house of God in the sense that it houses the church. Amen? God's not in the drywall. Okay? These light bulbs aren't holier than your light bulbs at home, okay? The church is the body of Christ. When we gather together, okay? And remember, the church, by the way, the church in the Bible always refers to the gathering, not the individual person. All Christians are temples of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. We're all, the Spirit dwells within us. But the church, that word is used for the body. Meaning when we gather, that's when it talks about the church, so many people go, well, because I have the Holy Spirit in me, and I'm already the church. As a part of the church, I don't need the church, meaning the gathering. And you've just severed the lifeline that will give you strength, encouragement through this, this week you're going to live. And so I learned that in college. I started to understand that better. And so I understood something. Yes, we should respect this building that God has given us. We should take care of it. We should honor it because it's a blessing. It's like anything else. You should take care of your car that God has given you. You should take care of your home. You should take care of your possessions because God has entrusted that to you as a good steward. I, I tell kids my own many times because they don't listen, okay? 
And I do love when I tell a kid not to run in the hallway out here and then they walk fast. Like that, like walk jog thing. I'm not running, okay? And let's be honest, when it's your kid, you do want to kind of just, you know, one time, can we just be real? You're like, I, I know you're messing with me. Don't do that. So why do I ask kids not to run in the hallway? Not because this is a holier place or that carpet out there is more holy. No, it's a safety thing. I don't want a kid to run into an older person and hurt them or injure them or damage something or hurt someone or damage property. But I'm using that as an example. Some of you grew up in churches where that idea of don't run in the church or mainly don't run in the auditorium was put on the same level as biblical doctrine. Like the virgin birth and don't run in the auditorium were of equal importance in your church growing up. It's okay to have standards and say, we don't do that because that's how we show respect. Great. But I can't in any sense put that nearly on par with biblical doctrine. So I'm using this as a somewhat silly illustration that I really pray doesn't offend you. But if it does, again, that's uh, take it up with him, I guess. And you've been in churches. Some of you have grown up in church. Some of you have been around churches where the color of the carpet was argued about more than what was being preached from the pulpit. It's just, it's silliness. And so some of you grew up in that. And so when you got to be 20, 30 years old, you started going, man, is this church tradition or is this biblical doctrine? And you started seeking out answers to that question. And that's a good question to ask. Pastor Greg shared when they got back from Wyumi, most of what we do in church is influenced by our culture. Now, I'm, right now I'm sitting and normally I would be standing to teach you and you would be sitting like normal as an audience hearing this message. But certain cultures, I would sit and you would stand or we'd all sit. In some cultures, they don't even sit on chairs. They just sit on the ground. Some of you are like, that'd be a long church service because I can't get up. Preacher, I'm going down. It better be at least two hours because I'm not trying to get up in 45 minutes. Some, it's just different. So when you ask that question, that's a good question to ask. Is this church tradition or is this Bible doctrine? Another question you might ask is, is this worth leaving a fellowship over? This answer to the question that I got, is it worth leaving a fellowship over? Should I genuinely step away from this church because they have this view and I have this view? It's okay to ask that question. But then where do we go for the answer? His word. Have we had conversations with leadership to say, hey, this is really where I feel being led. What, why does the church think this? Why does the church say that? Why do you believe this? But we live in a church culture today where many people just up and leave. They don't even have that conversation. But they should. Do you know one of the biggest reasons people leave a church? Music. Because that style of music isn't really what I want or what I feel is, quote, biblical. Well, last time I checked, I don't think we have any sack butts up here. I don't see any. Any shofas? Any shofas? No? Okay, so the instruments are different is what I'm getting at, right? Keith's amazed that I just named two instruments. He's like, I'm impressed. Like, I didn't even know you knew that stuff, Okay. Obviously, some of that is influence. Some churches you go, they have no instruments. It's just a cappella. Some churches you go, they have a much larger band. Some churches, they just have a piano or an organ. Do you know what's amazing? Is if the content of the music glorifies and honors Christ and draws us closer to him in worship and he's the focal point, the instruments really don't matter. That's why we worship. We don't worship because the band sounds good. We don't go into the heart of worship because, well, that music entertains me. 
See, this is where legalism goes both traditional and contemporary. If you attended a church where they told you that jeans and a t-shirt and contemporary music was where it was at and that was all there was, then that's legalism. If it's hymns only, suit and tie, that's legalism. Because if both are encouraged to gain you merit with God, that's not biblical. But people will leave for that. Why? If the, if the church is preaching the word of God, if they're teaching the word of God, if they're encouraging people in the Lord, if the music is Christ-centered, then have a conversation. Don't just leave or walk away mad. Just ask questions. It's okay to ask these questions. Another question we might ask or encourage someone who's asking you questions about your faith. They're struggling in their faith. They don't know what they believe anymore. Ask them this question because if they're your friend, you can ask them this. Are you just looking for a reason? Are you just looking for a reason to doubt? Looking for a reason to, quote, leave the faith? Are you just looking for something? Do you just want a reason and anything will work? Because some people are in that place. They're frustrated, they're hurt, they're burned out, whatever. And they don't really care what the answer is. They just want to find something. And if you answer this question, they'll just ask another one. And if you answer that one, they'll ask another one. And they'll just wait. And then when you go, well, I don't really know. They go, oh, that's it. I'm out. I'm done. Because you don't have an answer. It's not about having answers. It's about probing them and getting them to think about what's going on in my heart right now. Why am I asking these things? And then one of the last things I thought of here was, do I really want God's truth in my question or to my question? Do I really want to know what God thinks about this? Or am I just saying I do, but when I get the answer, I don't really want that? Do I really want God's truth? And you might say, well, I don't even know if I believe the Bible. Or someone you're talking to might say this, I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe in God. That's fine. Your lack of belief in God does not negate God's existence. He still exists. He still is God. This is still the word of God. Whether you choose to believe it or not, that's not up to me and up to you to decide. He is God. Do you know, I love how the Bible starts. How does the Bible start in Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, where does God defend his existence? Where does God convince us that he's God? No, no, no. It just starts in the beginning, God. Self-existent, self-sustaining, doesn't need us to validate him. So many people have done this with Jesus. I think it's David Platt that says it well, that Jesus is not some weak and puny savior that needs our acceptance. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And we're going to talk about in a moment. He's coming back. And when he comes back, it's going to be a whole lot different than when he came the first time. He's not weak and puny just begging, oh, would you please accept me? He is the humble gracious savior that came to this world and said, follow me, believe, repent, trust in me. The kingdom is at hand. And those that turned and repented, they found salvation. Those that walked away in disbelief and walked away in rebellion, Jesus allowed them to do that. But Jesus didn't stop the mission of God's will to coddle and beg these people to follow him. And so when we think about this, do we really want God's truth? Or do we want our cultural understanding, a relevant answer, a relative answer, some subjective ethical thing that makes us feel better? Because I'm telling you, if we want God's truth to these questions, it's not going to always be comfortable. I'm just going to tell you right now, and I said it before, sometimes I read the Bible and I'm like, man, that hurt. Sometimes I read the Bible and go, I don't even know if I'm a Christian. Because I read some things that Christians are supposed to be, and I'm like, I, mm, I don't know if I'm there yet. Jesus said, love your enemies. 
that should cause us pause to give us an awareness of saying, do I really know Christ? Do I really love my enemies? Not do I tolerate them. I joked about this person next to us at the campsite. I have to, I'm honest, I, last night I was getting angry. Lord, I'm getting mad. <laughs> and I was like, I'd go over there, but he'd probably beat me up. Like, I mean, just, it's not saying much, but it probably would be true. And I just had to pray, Lord, give me patience and grace because as much as this is driving me crazy, what does my sin do to you? But man, we're so quick, aren't we? To judge and jump and condemn. So I'm praying, Lord, I've had a couple conversations with the individual. Seems like a nice enough person. Lord, just give me an opportunity. Just make it known if this is, if there's a time I can share the gospel. But I'm just praying, Lord, just do a work. And that was hard because I didn't want to do that. I don't want to love this guy. Maybe strangle him, but I don't want to love him. You ever, you ever been there this week? Have you had those thoughts and those feelings of bitterness? Then you read, love your enemies. No conditions. No get out of jail free card. It's love your enemies. And so these questions are okay to be asked. And I wanted to go there this morning real quick before we get into this new stuff, which we're only going to scratch the surface, which is fine. But I wanted to kind of take a few moments and review that because I believe... And someone said it last week. They said, this is a really important thing. It needs to be talked about. Because people have tons of questions. Our world has all kinds of questions. And they've come to the church. And for the most part, the church has said, sit down, shut up, don't ask questions. Now, that's not the same as saying, this is what the word says. You choose to believe it or reject it. And God will give you the fruit of that choice. Like if you say, well, I don't want to receive that. That's not sit down and shut up. That's, this is the truth. Proverbs says sometimes you just have to tell the person the way that you're choosing is the way of destruction. Like you chose that, Proverbs says. Seek wisdom or seek destruction. Those are the two options. And so as we talked about last week, these questions may not be easy to ask or the answers easy to receive, but we go to the word to give these answers to those individuals in our lives. And so if you have any other questions on this topic, if you have somebody in your life that you're praying for, working with, talking to, and you want just a third party to just kind of give a little insight, or maybe I can just kind of objectively hear and kind of say, well, maybe go this or that direction. Not that I have the answers. I don't, but man, God's word does. And so maybe you would just reach out and say, hey, Pastor, would you just pray for me as I talk to this person? I don't need to know names, but this person in my life. And that's a way that we can encourage each other as the body of Christ. And so moving into week four, which will be week four little letter A, okay? So TJ already knows it's conversation with God. What would God say about when he's coming to get us? That's what we're going to be talking about. Week 4A. And next week will be, guess what? Week 4B. Okay, there we go. So this morning we're asking a question that genuinely has been asked for 2,000 years. When is he, God, coming to get us? When will Christ return? We as followers of Christ believe that Christ is going to return one day. Interestingly enough, and some of you maybe have studied this, we're not the only world religion that believes so. Islam actually teaches that Christ will return. Christianity and Islam both teach Christ will return. Now, we're not even the only two groups that think of this and talk about this and ask questions about this. In our world, there is just a general obsession with the end of the world. 
with when will all of this come to an end? Now, we say, when will Christ return? When will the end of the world come in a way of a biblical perspective? Obviously, Islam and even the world's eyes have a different starting point. They have a different perspective. Most people ask the question, when will the world end out of fear? I want to get ready for it, right? I'm going to build a bunker. Stock it with canned goods. You guys remember Y2K? I'm not going to ask if any of you built a bunker, stocked it with food, because some of you might be like, that was kind of me. I kind of did that, okay? And you were both like encouraged and really frustrated at like 1201, right? In the year 2000. You were like, hmm, man. And then some of you looked at your wife and was trying to explain why it was okay still to buy all this food and do all this and stockpile ammunition. We won't go there though. But people were so crazy about that. Why? It's the end of the world. It's the end of the world. Everything's coming to an end. And if you don't have hope in Christ and you only have hope in this world, then the end of this world will terrify you. It will terrify you. But man, when we have hope in Christ, the end of this world just means the start of that one. And we are so excited and we look forward to that. And so when will Christ return? Again, not only have Christians and Muslims asked this question or looked for his return, a lot of people have wondered if or when Christ will return. I just did a quick search online, just just out of curiosity. I saw, I love the laughter. They were like, "Mm, that's just an open door of trouble, right? Online search, careful. But just out of curiosity, I looked up kind of a rough search and I got back a quick response that I found was interesting. Between 50 and 55 different official dates have been set for the return of Christ since the founding of the church and about 24 to 50 years after today. So there's been about 50 dates between the founding of the church in 2020, 2022 rather, that said Christ is coming back at this time. Let that sink in for a moment. There's about 50 that were from 2022 and back, about five that are from 2022 and forward, future dates. That individuals, people have said and written books and done things on and lectures on and seminars on about this is when Christ will return. 50 to 55 different dates. That's one quick little search. The earliest date I could find for when somebody publicly said, this is when Christ will return, was 500 AD. 500 AD. That's like 450 years after he left. Like, or, you know, it's just crazy. And here's the other thing that I found interesting. Do you know that some people made multiple predictions? 19, one, like 1972, that year goes by. The same guy, 1976, 1984, 1989. The most I saw was like four predictions from one person. And then all of a sudden they didn't make any more predictions. I wonder why. You know what blew me away about that though? At what point does the people following this guy go, wait a minute. That's the third one you've gotten wrong, buddy. Like, come on. You know what also hit me? And I'm just going to be real for a moment. The modern charismatic apostolic movement. It's called the new apostolic movement. This belief, this denomination, this movement believes in the active gift of prophecy and prophets. There are actual people on planet earth that are prophets that can prophesy. You know what's crazy about this? People will give them tons of money to support the ministry. This has been going on for a long time. Do you know 98% of the stuff they predict doesn't happen? 
or it's so vague, it's so vague that when it does happen, they claim it was what they said would happen, but there's really no proof that it's exactly what they were saying. Do you know there's an individual that, I've mentioned this before in different services, that has made prophecies about certain things with our politics that were completely wrong a couple years ago. Completely wrong. Still has an active, flourishing ministry where people are sending him money and calling him a prophet, even though he was completely wrong about his prophecies. But people just eat it up. Because there's just enough Bible sprinkled in. Just enough. And just enough vagueness that it sounds right. Now, I don't know if many of you guys remember this. Most of those that are my age or older will remember Dion Warwick and the Psychic Network. Remember that on TV, those commercials back in the, those the 80s or 90s? You call this number up and they get a psychic reading. You'd have a better shot of getting accurate information from them than some of these prophets. And by the way, they're not accurate either. That's the point. I found this amazing. People just keep buying books by these people and just eating it up. It's nonsense. It's not biblical. But people keep doing it. Why? Because they're not doing what we encouraged to do last week and even this morning. They're not asking questions. They're not getting in the word and going, wait a minute. What are you saying and why do you say that? They're not really looking into the scripture. They're just bought into the fear of the times. The panic of the time. And if you feel like the world's going to end in your life, everything's crashing down in your life, and you see a book that says Christ will return, I only got to get through six months. I only got to get through two years. I only, that's that moment of hope, and you buy it, and you read it, and you invest in it, and you feel better, but you're being led astray. So when will Christ return? Again, in the last 2,000 years, it's a topic that has drawn much debate. Let's go to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles, provided page 763. Page 763. If you're using one of the Bibles, provided. Because that question was asked not only by the church, not only from the founding of the church forward, but also even the disciples asked this question in one way or another a couple times. I want to look at one example this morning. And I know this morning is a little different, so I appreciate you bearing with, with me. But Acts chapter 1, verse 6. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Now, this, what's this question asking? Now, there's a specific aspect of the coming of Christ, the establishment of an actual kingdom. Now, it's interesting when you read Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, kind of a precursor to what verse we read, and we talked about this on Sunday night a few weeks ago. Um, Jesus spent 40 days from the time of his resurrection to the time of his ascension, 40 days with his disciples, teaching them and training them and investing in them. And Acts 1 says that he was teaching them about the kingdom. Now, there's two ways to look at the kingdom in Scripture. There's the kingdom, what we refer to as the kingdom of God. Those that, like us as the church, we're part of the citizens of heaven. We're part of the kingdom of God as followers of Christ. There's a spiritual aspect to it. But we believe as a church, there's also a literal aspect to this. That Christ will literally establish a kingdom on earth. Now, that's what some believe the disciples were actually asking. Okay, are you going to finally bring about 
a literal kingdom, overthrow the Romans, establish a literal kingdom, get this thing going, and we can now serve in that kingdom. And you'll be our king and everything will be great. Now, remember, Jesus said, I'm going to go away. Remember in the Gospels? I'm going to go away. They're asking, are you going to establish this kingdom now? He hasn't even ascended yet. So what do you think their motivation is for asking this question? One, we want to rule and reign with you. They've still got some issues they got to work out because they still think it's about them. Number two, they don't want Jesus to leave. Like establish your kingdom and then we'll just be good. It'll be great. And Israel will be your people again and we'll rule again as the kingdom. And it's interesting to note that they ask this question. We ask these same types of questions. God, when are you coming again? Because I'm tired of what I see around me. Lord Jesus, will you come today? <laughs> Lord, I just want you here, and I'm anxiously awaiting your return. And they ask these questions, and so they're asking about this kingdom question. So again, I believe the disciples were asking about a literal kingdom, not a spiritual one. But I tend to believe Jesus was speaking about a spiritual kingdom when he was teaching them and training them about the church. He was saying, they're going to be added to the kingdom of God. They're going to be added to the kingdom of Christ. And they got their mind on the literal understanding, physical kingdom. And it's important we note Jesus's answer to this question. So let's look at verse 7 through 14. Verse 7 through 14. And he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power, but you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. I've always said, can you imagine that? Like Jesus is just talking, you're just like taking it, and all of a sudden he's just being taken up. I don't know what emotions you would feel. I'd feel a lot of emotions. I would feel joy, in a sense, because I'd be like, wow, he really did know what he was talking about. Like what he said was going to happen is happening. I'd feel sorrow. These men lived together for three and a half years. They, they missed their friend. They didn't want them, him to leave in the first place. Thomas was to the point where he was so full of grief, he wouldn't even believe that Jesus rose again until he saw him face to face. Poor doubting Thomas gets a lot of a bad rap, but I believe it was just because he loved Jesus so much he wanted to be with him. And when he knew he was dead, he was so grief struck and he was just angry. Remember, Thomas was the one that said, if we die, we die. When they wanted to go down and see Lazarus, oh, we can't go near Jerusalem, they'll kill us. Thomas said, well, if we die with Jesus, we die with Jesus. Like, it's worth it. Doesn't sound like a doubter to me. But here we read here that these disciples are experiencing probably a lot of emotions. Verse 10. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? The same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Then, retur then returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount of, called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. And when they were come in, they went up into upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew and Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, Zelotus, or Simon the Zealot, Judas, the brother of James, these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Now, this moment is crucial in the church's history. I, I think we skip over this a lot. 
Now, another gospel account says they returned with joy or gladness. They were happy as they returned. And they go to Jerusalem. They go to the upper room. And what do they do? They begin to pray and seek him. Now, why are they doing this? Because Jesus said, don't do anything until the spirit comes. One author said, you guys will go out there without the spirit and mess this whole thing up before it even gets started. Don't do anything until the spirit comes. So they were obedient. They were obedient. They went and they began to pray. Some think there was about 100 to 110 disciples in this meeting. That was the church. Now, we know there was others out that believed, but the core of the church in Jerusalem, 110. And God, in 2,000 years, has radically changed our world in something that started with first 12, and then a few more to 100, and then a few thousand, a couple chapters later, and a few thousand more. And now, the name of Jesus Christ reverberates throughout all of history because the church was founded on Christ in prayer. Isn't that what we just read? Jesus is the foundation. The confession that Jesus is the son of God. That's, Jesus said, that's what I'm going to build my church upon, Peter. That confession, not on Peter. Peter was a stone, a small stone, part of this larger foundation with the prophets and the apostles. But Jesus said, upon that confession, I will establish my church. I'm going to do something. And it wasn't just Jesus and the confession that he's the son of God. He also used prayer to establish his church. And not only that, we have the foundation of Christ, the confession that he is the son of God, the way, the truth, and the life, as was saying so beautifully by Renee, Melody, and Abby this morning. And by the way, I almost said Abbott, like Corbett and Abby together. I don't know what was going on there. It was beautiful though. Honestly, that was amazing. So it's the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the foundation of prayer, but the hope of his coming. Really, you could say that's the foundation of the church. Jesus is the son of God. Prayer is vital to speak to, to seek out, to get wisdom and counsel from that savior by the work of the Holy Spirit and that he is coming again. That is the foundation really of the church. We function today out of those basic ideas. He is the savior. He is the son of God. He is Lord of Lords. We pray and seek him because we need his wisdom and his guidance because we can't do any of this without him. We need the spirit's power, which becomes available to us or rather made known to us as we are spending time in prayer and we look forward to his return. We look with great anticipation to the day he comes again. So how do we respond to this? How do we respond to this idea that we know he's coming again? The angel said, he went up, he's coming back. But I want to point out one more thing about this in this text. And then we're really going to, we'll close and we'll get into the more meat of this next week. That when the angel appeared, what, what did he ask the disciples? Why do you men stand gazing up into heaven? You know what he was asking them? Why are you guys just standing around? you got some things to do. And so we're going to unpack next week. We're going to talk about the rapture of the church. We're going to talk about the second coming of Christ. We're going to talk about all those things. Why some people believe in certain aspects of that. Why some people don't. 
But the key in this whole thing is verse 8. They were worried about this kingdom. Are you finally going to do this kingdom? And Jesus' response, in my paraphrase, how Jesus would say it to me in my mind, don't worry about that right now. Yes, we look with anticipation. We believe he's coming again. We don't negate that fact. But we don't get consumed by that where we become no earthly good. He says in verse 7 and verse 8, And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. So when somebody sets a date on something, stop listening to them. It's just not true. They don't know. Well, yeah, but they know this. They've got this beautiful chart and all these colors and this graph. And it sounds really good. They don't know. Well, yeah, but he's got all these degrees and he knows the He doesn't know. He just doesn't know. And we'll talk about next week how there are signs for the second coming of Christ that we can look to. There's things that can happen. But we're also going to give you a forewarning that some people make signs out of things that aren't signs. Because they want so badly for him to come. So what does Jesus say? It's not for you to know. We look forward, we anticipate, but we don't know for sure. Verse 8. But you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me. You know why we shouldn't be so focused on his coming again? We can be excited for it, look forward to it. But if we get too focused on that, we forget we're here for a mission. And the angel was saying, you guys got a mission that's crucial to go out and make disciples. Isn't it amazing that nowhere in Scripture does Jesus say, go found a church, go plant a church. It's not in the Bible. What is in the Bible is go make disciples that will then lead to a gathering of a church. And as you disciple people in your life, and as you encourage people in Christ in your life, and you invite them into that relationship with Jesus Christ, they will naturally by the working of the Holy Spirit, maybe supernaturally is a better word, they will begin to be drawn to a body of believers because they will want to gather. And that's how the church for 2,000 years has changed the world. Not because we went and planted a church in this area, but because we went to an area and we preached Jesus and we led them to Christ and they came to Christ and then the Spirit worked and then you discipled them. And now the byproduct of that is a church. In our church culture, we do it a little backwards. We go plant a church and then try to go get disciples. And that's not how Jesus established it. See, we have a mission to accomplish. And by the way, the Apostle Paul says, our time is short. The time is short. So we need to be aware that our timetable is not God's timetable. I don't know how much longer we have. Now, I do believe that every day we get closer and closer to the return of Christ. And I believe there's things in our world that are showing us that. But that doesn't change the fact that every single day he gives me, I need to live for him. To be a good steward with what he's given me. Because here's the reality, and we're going to close with this. We don't know when he's coming back, but you don't know when you're going to see him either. James says this life is a vapor. It appears for a short time and vanishes away. Boast not of tomorrow, for you don't know what a day brings forth. You have breath in your lungs right now. Do you know Christ? Do you know him as your Lord and personal Savior? And if you do, then you have an assurance that whether he comes and gets you or whether you go and see him, you have a peace and a joy that will last for eternity. And, and some of us, we answer that question so quickly. Are you a believer? Yes. And then we'll go to some past event in our lives. Like, did this thing back there? 
And yes, we have a moment of conversion in our lives we look back to, but is that moment of conversion leading to present-day fruit? Is there a continuation of that decision you made when you were a kid? Or was it just a decision that had no fruit? You prayed a prayer, you raised your hand, you went forward, but really you weren't saved, you weren't weren't really giving yourself to Christ. You were just going through the motions. You did it because everyone else was doing it, or you felt guilty, or you felt obligated. But do you know Christ as your Lord and personal Savior? And if you do, it doesn't matter when he comes again. It doesn't matter what happens in our world today because we have a peace, John 14, 27, that the world cannot give and the world cannot take away. We have a peace with Christ. So whether he comes or we go to see him and he calls us home, we are excited because we can enter into the joy of the Lord. Would you bow your heads with me in a word of prayer? Father, we thank you for this morning. And Lord, I know that we went a little different than what I had planned, but I know that you are glorified when your word is shared. And so I pray that you've used this morning to encourage hearts, to open minds. Lord, again, maybe there's somebody here that's asking those tough questions. That just isn't sure whether what they were taught growing up is Bible or tradition. They want to believe and they want to believe in Christ. They want to believe the teachings of Jesus, but maybe they grew up in a church or in a a denomination that kind of blurred the lines between tradition and Bible. And they've been made to think things are biblically true or biblical doctrines and you have to hold to these things that maybe is more of a methodology or maybe more of a tradition thing. And those things aren't bad in and of themselves. There's some great heritage in our churches. Those things are good and they're fruitful. But I pray that if somebody here grew up in a system where that was made the same as biblical doctrine, where where you have to believe this exact way of doing this, then Lord, I pray to give wisdom and discernment that they can discern between those things. Father, there are things in your word that are very clear, black and white. We may not like them, our culture may disagree with them, but it's true. We have to submit or rebel, and it's our choice. You give us that freedom. But in the same token, Lord, I pray you'd give us wisdom, and we ask those questions to have a leading of the Spirit, to respond to truth in faith, to step outside of our comfort zone and just see your, your glory on display. Father, we thank you that your word is clear. You are coming again. Lord, we don't know the day or the hour, but Father, we believe it. And we believe it because your word says it. And so we, with anxiety or with anxious thoughts, Lord, we, we want that so badly. We're so anxious to see you and to be with you. But Lord, help that enthusiasm to be kept in check, if you will, in response to our mission on earth. That we can't just hide in our churches and wait for your return. We're supposed to be active in, in doing and leading and sharing the gospel. And so help us to see how we can be a part of that this week. And Father, again, I I don't know how you're going to apply this message to the hearts and minds of people here, but I pray that you would do a work that would glorify you, that we'd respond in faith. Lord, we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we are led in a song of invitation? Would you come and pray? Maybe you have some questions and you're wrestling with some things. Would you come and say, God, give me wisdom? 
God, maybe you're working with somebody that needs questions. God, give me wisdom with them. Maybe you're questioning, do you really know Christ? Maybe you'd come and pray and say, God, I repent of my sin. I trust in you, Lord Jesus, to save me from my sin, that I would live my life for you. Whatever it is that God is doing, would you respond, whether they're in your seats or here at the altar as we sing?